welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only. Do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Peter O'Sullivan. Peter is a renowned researcher, clinician, and thought leader within musculoskeletal physiotherapy. Peter is based out of Perth in Western Australia, where he is a professor of musculoskeletal physiotherapy at Curtin University. I wanted to get Peter on the show to speak of his evolution in thought and beliefs as it pertains to low back pain. Peter has publicly pivoted from a biomedical quantitative heavy research approach to a more biopsychosocial qualitative approach over the past 15 years. I asked Peter what catalyzed this intellectual shift and what were some key lessons he learned along the way. This is a must-listen conversation to hear from one of the true giants in the musculoskeletal physiotherapy landscape. This conversation was originally recorded in December 2021 for my YouTube show on the shoulders of giants. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the conversation and for your information, for the first time in two years, I'm running my one-day shoulder workshop in Sydney and Melbourne in May and June 2022. Tickets are limited to 30 participants for each event. The course offers a complete distillation of the evidence base for shoulder pain management, equipping you with up-to-date knowledge, techniques, and clinical reasoning skills that are clinically actionable. If this is something you are interested in, check the show notes for more information. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Peter O'Sullivan. Hello and welcome. So I am privileged today to be joined by Professor Peter O'Sullivan. Hi, Peter, and thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting so, me. No, absolute. The, the privilege is all mine. So, so firstly, Peter, it's an absolute real thrill to talk to you today. I, I mentioned to you a moment ago, but I've read all your work. It sounds nerdy, I know, but um, I've been really heavily influenced by it and without trying to embarrass you too much with too many grandiose statements, you have really influenced a, a generation of therapists for the better. And I would just like to, to take this opportunity to say thank you for your work and you've made a real difference. Well, I probably have to preface that by saying that it's not just my work. Um, I am so privileged to work with an amazing group of people, uh, researchers, clinicians, uh, both here locally and, you know, nationally, internationally, who have a huge part of that journey. So, um, you know, I'm just part of a team of people who have, you know, have been part of this journey. So so important to recognize that. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah. that's a good point. We're going to get to some mm. of your publications in a minute with some some really uh special co-authors as well so i'll just yeah i'll sort of just briefly introduce you so everyone knows who you are peter but you're a professor of musculoskeletal physiotherapy over in perth at curtin uni you're a specialist musculoskeletal physio as well and you've, yeah. you've authored hundreds of papers i don't know the exact number you probably don't either mm. um mm. and the, <laughs> and the papers are that have made a real impact and they've been They've made people think and they've made people reflect and they've challenged dogma, especially my mm. biases when I first mm. started reading them 10 years ago. And we're going to mm. get to this in a minute. So, so your papers have, have been influential to a wide range of people and they've not been, and again, with your co-authors, they've been varied in terms of their approach. And that's going to be a really mm. important uh, mm. conversation a little, bit, a little bit later on. Importantly, Peter, you're a clinician. As well, you're still yeah. practicing, so that's a yeah. real key ingredient too. Yeah. So, so what's your normal week look like at the moment, Peter? <laughs> so, um, uh, my normal week is I spend um, I'm three days in the practice, um, and my my caseload is people with disabled, you know, who are disabled with persistent pain, and it could be of any pain area. So, foot, ankle, knee, hip back, neck, shoulder, widespread, chronic headaches, migraines, it's chronic pain. So um, that's where I spend a proportion of my week. So half of my week essentially is with patients. And, um, and I, I love it. It's, 
it is such a privileged position to be in, I think, and uh, I'm so grateful for that. Uh, I've learned so much from those interactions and do every day, essentially. Um, and then the other half of my week is um, mainly research, but also partly involved in education in our postgrad program. Um, and so that would involve a number of, you know, research projects, supervision of PhDs and the like, postdocs. So has it, has it been, have you made a deliberate effort to sort of maintain your clinician mm. status? Yeah, yeah. actually, um, during my PhD, I worked part-time clinically, um, and my PhD was a clinical PhD. And ever since then, I've only ever had a part-time position at the university. So my whole academic career has been on a 0.5 position. And that's been a, probably one of the key things for my career development, I think, and mm. that there's this kind of interplay between, I mean, working as a clinician has allowed me to ask clinical questions that we can then explore in a research environment. Um, I also see clinical practice as the perfect N of one experiment, which has got all the biases of being N of one, uh, but it also gives you a, an in-depth understanding of the individual. Um, and we often lose the individual when we do big, big data assessments the individual gets lost and we start talking about mean differences and we don't see the complex multi-dimensional um, profile of people who come to see us which is essentially every person we see and I think that gets washed out in a lot of research and so we talk about these kind of very general understandings of pain but it doesn't tell us about the individual and you probably see in that journey, um, you talk through my research journey, that we've really embedded ourselves in the qualitative space mm. in the last number of years. And potentially, I mean, that, that, that kind of resonates with me as a clinician because that is the story that I hear every day in clinical yeah. practice. And, you know, in my view, that's where we have to go in research is be embedded and engage with the people with the lived experience because that's where we'll learn the most. Beautiful. So you lead us perfectly into the next question or to the next. So I'm just going to talk here for a bit, Peter. No, nobody yeah, wants to hear from me, but I need to just set it up and then yeah, go for it. And then we're going to hear from you. So I've I've had a I've I've gone through your back catalogue, Peter, and this is a this is your life, all right. And I've arrived I've arrived at an early paper in the 1990s, 1997, which was called mm. I think you're the lead author of this one: Altered Patterns of Abdominal yeah. Muscle Activation in Patients with Chronic Low Back Pain. So this is yeah. 20, 24 yeah. years ago. And then yeah. we go to the early 2000s. We've got a paper titled Lumbar Repositioning Deficit in Specifics in Specific Low Back Pain Population, yeah. 2005 Diagnosis and Classification of Chronic Low Back Pain Disorders, Maladaptive Movement and Motor Control Impairments as Underlying mm. Mechanism. Now, I'll skip through to 2012, so seven years between that 2005 paper. Mm. And then in 2012... You wrote a paper uh, in the BJSM and editorial, which which I read in maybe my first year of practice. Peter, you, you killed me, mate. You absolutely, <laughs> you ruined everything for me. So thank you. It, it, was, it, was, it was called, it's time for change with the management of non-specific low back pain. And we're going to speak about that one in a minute, but it was a really good paper. Mm. 2013, you started publishing on cognitive functional therapy. And that was with mm. JP Canero as the lead author. 2015 with Sam Bunsley as the lead author. Mm. You had a qualitative study on patient perspectives in cognitive functional therapy. 2018, I think your landmark paper actually was mm. your cognitive functional therapy and integrated mm. behavioral approach, which is a- I'd agree uh, with that. I reference that. <laughs> Good. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that one in a minute. Yeah. And, then, and then you've got your one with Jeremy in terms of is it time to yeah. reframe non-traumatic? Yeah. Another landmark paper, sit up straight, time to evaluate. And then yeah. more recently, a paper about beliefs with JP yeah. and Sam. So apologies for just regurgitating all your work. Mm -hmm. out here, but I think it's helpful for others. So let's talk about this progression. So started out quantitative heavy research, looking at impairments, mm. looking mm. at motor control, mm looking at posture and then mm. somewhere around 2010, 2012 from the outside yeah. something happened. Now what happened? So yeah, so, <laughs> so if you kind of frame my um, my journey as a young, you know, as, as a training physiotherapist, I had this enormous sense of frustration that what I was being taught had no evidence base. Mm. Um, you know, we had a I I trained in Dunedin in New Zealand. Um, and we had this little library. It was a little room with 
publications of the spine and the Australian Journal of Physiotherapy. That was it. Like that was it for research and <laughs> nothing else. And then we were trotting out all this stuff which had zero evidence behind it. And that deeply concerned me. But in, in that sense that my entire mindset around managing pain or understanding pain was purely structural and biomechanical. That was it. Um, and, uh, and that really took me into my PhD journey or post-grad and then into the PhD, PhD journey looking at, you know, a specific group of people with spondylolisthesis and the whole idea, it was right, right around that time with the emergence of, you know, stability and mm. local muscles, global muscles. So I just got sucked into that void, I think. But also around that time was this emergence of, you know, pain science. So Max Zussman, who you may or may not know of, was a really pioneer in that space who was at Curtin. And we had some extraordinary conversations about, you know, like these worlds. His world was neuroscience and my world was people with back pain who had these impairments and structural biomechanical impairments and I was addressing them and these people were getting better because that was my lens um and then you know post PhD it all just kind of started to unravel so I can remember um Wim Dankitz oh, he was my first PhD experiment really um and he, we were started looking at you know what these people with pain were doing and it wasn't doing we weren't seeing what we thought we would see and i think that's been a lot of my journey is um you ask a question of data and you look at the data and it tells you something different and you have to stop reflect reframe and go what is this telling me and i think that's been my clinical journey as well of like we come at it with these beliefs we are so belief orientated as human beings i reckon and that ability to sit back and self-reflect um, and probably the other thing that was pivotal was around the mid 90s i made a decision to completely change how i practiced so get out of this short treatment session and spend an hour with a new patient half an hour with a follow-up and that was pivotal for me to have time to listen to reflect to question, to explore, um, to play, to be creative. That was a critical moment in my career where I'm going, I, don't, I can't work in this paradigm of treating symptoms. It deeply unsettled me. I felt like I was treating symptoms and not getting to the underlying basis of what was going on. I didn't have time. I was working on autopilot. It was horrible. That deeply unsettled me as a thinking person mm. and as a reflective person. And I think those parallel journeys uh, and, and then the evolving understanding of pain. I think pain research was it really at its infancy when I graduated. It's exploded. I've been updating my understanding of reflecting that in clinical practice and going back and asking these hard questions and looking at the data and going, what does it tell us? So that whole process really upended my entire belief system. Yeah, <laughs> essentially yeah. to go actually the things that I was believing that I believed just weren't evidence-based and I had to then I had to either go well what I'm doing I can't do anymore so either I walk away from it or I do something different and I'm so grateful I didn't walk away that I actually had the you know presence of mind to go these people desperately need help so walking away from a difficult problem doesn't solve a problem actually going deeper into reflecting on my own practice, my own belief, my own behaviors, how I interact or how I support these people is the key. And, you know, understanding that I trained in manual therapy, spent hours learning to really um, to manipulate any, you know, parts of the body. And I, I can do that. But I, I just saw, I see that as such a um, small part of the whole picture now. Like I spent mm. hours learning those skills mm. and the skills that are fundamental I see in clinical practice are not those skills. Mm. Um, patient handling is really important, I, but that's part of communication, I think. Mm. Um, so did so, you have... So that's, was, a, that's kind of, it's an iterative journey that yeah, just yeah. has so many layers and it's been influenced by lots of people as well. Yeah. Um, you know, people who really questioned me hard, who have like attacked my beliefs. Yeah. Um, that's been a painful process, but but I've, I've gone, I suppose I've been fortunate to go back and really question myself um, and then allow myself 
to go, I need to leave that behind. And so the, t- the 2012 paper was kind of like my coming out paper, really. I'd mold, I'd mold on that paper for quite some time and um, contacted Karen Khan and said, I, I feel like I need to publish this. <laughs> I need to kind of set my record straight because I, you hadn't mentioned other papers like uh, clinical instability. You know, that was my belief system that these behaviours that we were seeing in patients were a, a fundamental um, deficit in the stability of the spine and it was all just about that. And mm. I, I'm like... I just had to kind of throw that cloak away and go, you know what? That's how I saw the world, but this is now how I see the world and this is how I think we have to move forward. And, of course, that didn't sit well with quite a few of my colleagues. Yeah. But, but to me it was kind of like a re- reset, I think, in terms of where I was heading um, both clinically and, and, a, and from a research perspective. Yeah, that's, well, that's that, so, so around about that 2012 paper so you were sitting on that for a few years i imagine intellectually yeah, you were definitely yeah how going. would i write this how would i frame it yeah and, and i i kind of felt like i've been tagged with this yeah. but you were into you know stability you published on this stuff and i'm like i had to come out and go look i get it that's where yeah. it was at but yeah. that is not what i'm thinking and the reasons people got better were probably completely different reasons to what i thought you know you know why a human being changes is probably got a lot more to do with fundamental beliefs and their perception of threat. And probably what we were doing is reframing in a way that de-threatened them. Um, and look, you could argue you could take lots of different ways of doing that. I don't think it was the best way or evidence-based way. And so I had to reset that for myself. And then so publishing that, what was your, so how was it received sort of broadly at the time? Were you lauded? Oh, were you mixed. criticized? Were yeah, you, yeah, yeah, totally. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I think there are a lot of people who thought I'd gone to the dark zone. Yep. Uh, like lots of people who felt like I'd betrayed my training and my profession. And, yep. you know, I was, it was not received well at all yep. by a number of people yep. and others i congratulated me for having the guts to do it and i i didn't really see that as particularly brave i saw it as kind of redemptive for me more than anything <laughs> <laughs> nice cathartic moment for it was you. definitely yeah. <laughs> it was like oh i could breathe this sigh of relief it was like i just threw off that piece of clothing that really had awesome. i'd out i'd outgrown yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it didn't suit my fashion at the time <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. And so so on that, right? So so 10 years ago seems like in the grand scheme, not that long ago, but in evidence-based practice in physiotherapy, I think it's quite a long time ago, actually. Mm. And so so when that when that paper came out, did you so you were already practicing differently at that point? Yes, I imagine. definitely. Yep. Oh yep. yeah, absolutely. So that was more a, a, a landmark point, point to go, well, I I need to set my next direction clear here because I've evolved way beyond where I was at. People were like going, they were talking to me like I was back 10, 15 years ago. I'm like, that's not me anymore. I don't sit in that space anymore. So yeah, no, I'd well and truly moved by that time. And that, that was more like a signpost to go actually just to let you know, (laughs) because I was getting all these emails about, you know, this work that I was like, that's not where I'm at anymore. So I, this was like, Hey, read this. This is where I'm at now. But isn't that amazing? The, the evolution of of not just your beliefs but but the research as well and i think it's it's missing from a lot of practice and i'm not having a go at anyone or anything but this reflective mindset in regards to evidence and you mentioned five ten minutes ago that you had two choices you could either keep doing or leave what I you were doing i couldn't or, keep or doing go down a different pathway couldn't, or, i couldn't there's a third option. You just keep doing what you're doing. Ignorant no, I couldn't. At all. Yeah. Couldn't do it. No. And did you so just that, feel... I'm a bit, that's yeah. me. I'm not, yeah. I, I'm a value-based human being. So I just can't do shit. I don't believe in. I can't. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I nearly failed electrotherapy in my undergraduate training. I hated it. I didn't believe in it. I thought it was bullshit. I'm like, I, I just can't subscribe to stuff I don't believe in. Um, and that's probably been to my disadvantage <laughs> over my life. But, it is who I am. Yeah. You're, you're that guy. I love it. I am that guy. And, and you know, I, th- I kind of reflect on the where we've come as a profession. We kind of got ourselves, we're historically locked into this, you know, short consult. You're paid, yeah. you're paid for the session, not for time. It's ridiculous. 
like that is driving really poor practice. That constrains people to not having time to think and evolve. I think it's a disaster for us as a profession. Um, and I bailed out of that early and that was critical for me in my growth, I reckon. How did you um, achieve But I reckon that? that's a – I just did it. Yeah, you just went. Were you, were I just you, said, look, if yeah. no one's come and see me, that's okay. But but I'm here and I'm going to spend an hour with patients yeah. and I'm going to charge them for that time. Yeah. And if they want to come, that's cool. If they don't, that's cool. Um, and I never, ever in my entire career have I been without a significant wait list of people wanting to come because these people want to tell their story and yeah. no one gives them time. Yeah. Yeah. Look – Okay, we're gonna. I'm gonna come back to that in, in a second. I just wanna. I wanna. So, so just on your evolution again. You, you know, there are many, many people in the world who just look at your early work, right, mm. and then are completely ignorant to any evolution of your thought or any evolution of your of your thinking. Well, it probably makes them feel more comfortable. Yeah, totally. So, do you think that's what underlies it all? It's this. Yeah. Like, it's how they totally. make sense of their world. Yeah, totally. Look, we know that's what, yeah. that's what human beings do, right? We yeah. cherry pick stuff that fits our yeah. worldview. Yeah. And we ignore stuff that doesn't because it yeah. unsettles us because yeah. we are fundamentally belief driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's parallels with, with patients there as well, oh. I guess. Parallels okay, so, with climate change yeah. and vaccines and yeah. politics and God knows what. I'm with you. That's, that's, <laughs> com that's conversation for next week. Um, can we go from your 2012 paper, Peter, to cognitive functional therapy? Now, I don't yeah. expect you to, to give yeah. the full synopsis of it, but what, what led to that? It's, it's that was the hardest framework. paper I've ever written. Yeah, okay. That paper took three years. I, I've never spent that much time yeah. writing a paper. And I think what was so hard about it, I think intuitively I worked the way I work, to write that down was really difficult. To articulate how I how I intuitively work with patients was an incredibly difficult thing to do, yeah. and and it was greatly helped by the team of people who were involved, co-authors on that paper, to kind of sculpt it, weave it, um, and I wanted it to be a paper that was accessible for um, for clinicians. Um, that they could read it and go, that makes sense. Mm. But also to be heavily embedded in the patient narrative. So we had those cases in there as well to talk about the multidimensional complexity of pain and how we can't subgroup people. It doesn't work. We tried, it doesn't work. We tested, it doesn't work. Everyone is their own individual. Um, but we need to consider patients, these different domains that are important for, for everybody and consider them within a multidimensional framework. So that then there's kind of two parts of that paper. One is the individual, the multi-dimensional nature of pain, which is biopsychosocial. People go, oh, you're just into psychosocial. That's bullshit. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, I tell send people for MRI scans. Yeah. I recommend surgery. That's about triage and understanding the drivers of pain. Um, but for the, for, and so I see a mix of that in my own clinical practice. But it is a, truly about the multi-dimensional nature of pain. Um, and then the second part of that paper is what do you do about it? So there's like, what is the problem and how do we, you know, how, how do I, or how do we conceptualize how we manage it? And, you know, to be, to be completely clear here, this is just a, a, a one lens of like looking through my world as a physiotherapist with all my imperfections and biases and weaknesses and vulnerabilities to go, how do I make sense of this world through my lens to take a patient with disabling back pain on this journey to deal with that complexity. That's essentially the paper. Yeah, well, very well, very well said. And it focuses on on low back pain. Yeah, but uh, that was just, yeah, and we had to do that really yeah. because um, we were setting up a number of trials mm. and we wanted to use the paper as a um, template to say, this is the intervention. Mm. This is our lens, this is the intervention. Um, so that it was a reference paper for those trials. Mm. So that was part of the, uh, deliberate. Uh, and then, um, you know, it's really a template for looking at, at pain, as yeah. I understand it. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and how has that one been received, Peter? Was it better than your 2012 coming out? Or was it um, a little bit mixed as well? 
look, we we uh, it was it was not um, except well, we tried a few different avenues to get it published, and there are some um, yeah. <laughs> some journals didn't want to touch it. Yeah. Um, PTJ kindly touched it, and it's, I think it's their lead paper. Yeah. Um, um, and so look. I don't know. I kind of feel like we live in ecosystems now. I, 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 that's the thing that worries me about social media is like people talk, you know, you see this, you know, it's like you are, it's that self-confirmatory bias that we are so prone to. Mm. Um, yeah, look, I, I think probably there was a sense that, um, you know, we were trying to brand something. Mm. To me, it was much more to say, you know, we had to call it something. And, and I see this huge gap within pain the pain at the moment we've got you know the biomedical and the psych psych over here and there's this missing piece in the middle is that like the lived experience for the individual or like the embodiment of pain and i think that's where this work sits somewhere bridges a gap mm. um between psychology and physiotherapy and it's not trying to be a psychologist it works with psychologists mm. but it fills a space that i think has not been adequately met in current mm. practice so, so before we go into the to the qual and the phenomenology stuff, what do you, what role do you see for quantitative research going forward? Oh, I still, still think you feel like it's yeah, valuable. Yeah, yep. yeah, totally, it does. Yep. So like, you know, we'd be fortunate to be part of um, a cohort study group mm. here, and that's like big, you know, data sets of mm. like tracking the development of pain and you know, thirteen hundred young kids from the age of 14 and they're now into their mid thirties. That's, yeah. that's been really helpful yeah. to go, what is the, you know, what's the big picture story of this group? Mm. You know, this is an emergent problem. This doesn't look like injury. This looks like some other, some chronic health disorder that emerges looks like asthma. So mm. from a, just a broad picture understanding of health to realize that this is like a complex multidimensional health disorder that emerges often in early in life that sets a trajectory for life gives you a different understanding of the problem i think mm. that's really helpful mm. to kind of look at it from a big picture and zoom into the individual mm. and we've been lucky to have been able to do that um, mm -hmm. with access to that data set so that quantity stuff tells you something in general terms uh the the qualitative stuff tells you about the individual Mm. And you need both perspectives. Absolutely. From a, from, a health, from a general health perspective or public mm. health perspective, you need both. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bringing all of that together, which can be troubling for a clinician. Mm. And I've experienced this myself. You know, it's, this, is what, this is what that RCT says, right? Yeah. This is ineffective versus that or not efficacious yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And then, but this person is here. So yeah, exactly. It, how do we reconcile that, Peter? It, it's challenging yeah. for a lot of new graduates. Yeah. Look, I, I, I see that. I, I kind of feel a bit concerned about what I see through social media because mm. I feel like there are these wars that are set up, which are really unhelpful. Mm. I genuinely think we have to come back. And I, that's why I love the likes of, um, you know, Gilletta Belton and her initiatives and looking mm. at the patient perspective because I think we're missing the patient in the middle of this. It's like, mm. it's about our agenda. You know, it's like, I'm into this and I'm into that and this is where I, this is my school and I think this is better than that. It's like, honestly, guys, we are talking about human beings suffering here and you're talking about your thing. That's just deeply insensitive in my mind to the people who are sitting in our community who are disabled and distressed and are suffering. I, I just go, we need to come back to that as our reference point yeah. and stop these ridiculous arguments about minutiae. It's crazy. Mm. So, yeah, like we have to be armed with knowledge mm. and that knowledge and understand that knowledge is updating all the time. Yeah. It's all the time updating and we have to be alert to be updated all the mm. time. Mm. But we also have to be respectful for the individual. Mm. We have to understand what the literature says. And there are some really cool, you know, I, I love the paper that Ivan Lin re, uh, led yeah. around best practice. Like that's a cool template yep. to measure our practice by. And then the follow-up to that was patient-centered care, which I think is a really cool paper around how do you deliver that practice. Mm. That's a really safe space, I reckon, mm. for a clinician. It's not about you should do this, you should do that. It's about the person sits in mm. the middle of that. Mm. And the person is the key and their agenda is the key. We mm. come to this question with our agenda and that's not right. Mm. You know, we can impart our knowledge imperfect as it is, but at the end of the day, that's a dance. When you're working with a patient, 
and they're distressed and, you know, they're disabled and they're lost. Mm. Talking stuff at them doesn't help them. Yeah, a lot of mansplaining going on. I, I remember a quote from you, Peter, many years ago. And again, this speaks to me stalking you over the years, uh, <laughs> over the internet. And I think you said something about helping a, a person in pain is like putting together a puzzle. They bring the pieces, you help yeah, them put, that's right. put I it do together. See that. Yeah. yeah, I do see that. And is that how, is that a nice yes. metaphor or way? I, love, of I, I, often, I see it like that. So yeah. literally people come in to see me you know, I had classic case, you know, this week of a lady who came in, you know, just incredibly distressed. And she's going, the car, I, my back I was, my back seized up a few months ago with a COVID jab. It's a COVID jab. Yeah. Like, it was a COVID jab. Has to be. Really distressed, right? And uh, as it unraveled, there was all this stuff happening in this person's life. Like, really tough stuff happening in this person's life and the COVID jab might have just triggered something <laughs> might have let a match in a very dry forest with a rushing wind that turned into a forest fire but I don't think it, you know the COVID jab was the least of the issue in that sense so I kind of you know that whole you know space for that lady was distress and she was frightened and she was lost and didn't know what to do. It was like all these drugs, she couldn't think straight. She was, you know, threatened to lose at work. You know, that's the world I live in. Yeah. That's the space that I deal with. And it's like, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, at the end of the session, we could kind of reflect on how the nature of her pain and where she was going to go it was not just about the COVID jab, but mm. I was going to lecture on that mm. at the get-go. Mm. And my interests for her were her interests. She wanted pain control. You know, she wanted to get back to doing the stuff she loves. She wanted to better go to work and not be stressed. That's her. That were her goals. They became my goals in terms of how I cared for her. That's how we have to see this thing. I think. Mm. And do you that conversation or that particular case you just mentioned? It sounds. It sounds difficult. It sounds challenging. It, it sounds like there's hard conversations, yeah. right? Look, she had four panic attacks yeah. in that session. She yeah. was lying on my bed. She goes, I have to get up, panicking. Yeah. I'm going, you're okay. Yeah. It's okay. Just so How did you navigate and that? And breathe. Just breathe. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I get that this is stressful for you. I get that you're frightened. Yeah. But just hang in with me. Just breathe. It's okay. Yeah. At the end of the session, she said, I feel like I could go to sleep. Yeah. But I held her there. I held it there and go, you're safe. And like, if you understand fear, and that's why Sam Bunsley's work. And I, look, I have to credit some wonderful people who've taken me on their journey. Like these PhDs, colleagues of mine have taken me on journeys that they've led, that have taken me through these awesome spaces. Like Sam's qualitative journey of understanding pain-related fear. It's such a helpful body of work. Yeah. Such a, and it's, it's, resonates with Sam as a human being. You know, she's deeply interested in the individual. Mm -hmm. um, but that's given, it's so helpful to then arm you to go, what I'm seeing in this patient is fear. Yeah. Like I'm going, what are you feeling? I'm terrified, she says. She's terrified of lying on the ground, like lying on her back. That's mm -hmm. the nature of fear. It's irrational. Yeah. yeah. And then. So yeah, so it's you... tough. But I reckon that massively reflects us. Like mm. we have a discomfort of seeing people distressed. We have a discomfort of seeing people in pain. That's on us as an individual. Am I comfortable with distress? Well, I have to be in my job. You know, like yesterday, I don't know, six of my patients would have used tissues. Mm. That's a normal day for me. It's normal. It's good. It's healthy. It's, it's a normal experience of people who are suffering with pain. Yeah. I'm okay with that. We are not trained to deal with that stuff as yeah. physios. We yeah. find it difficult. We shut it down. We ignore it because that's on us. Yeah. And I, I reckon for the first seven years of my career, it still happens. My When times get tough, what do we fall back on? We yeah. fall back on these 
fixing movement impairments. We, yeah, we totally fall back different. on a little bit of manual therapy, which I'm not demonizing. Yeah. No, me neither. Look, I yeah. use manual therapy because yeah. it's, again, it's the patient's agenda. Yeah. But I'm really clear about what it means and yeah. I'm really clear about its place. Yeah. And so you feel like our role is more of perhaps a coach of support, of empathy, of bringing knowledge to the table because there is a rich oh, massive yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, look, I, I, yeah, a lot of things, and I think I captured, we captured that in um, in the the CFT paper mm. around the skill set. Mm. Like, it's a broad skill set. I think that's so cool. Like, mm. we have to be really skilled in communication. We have to have a deep understanding of human behavior. We have to be yeah. able to triage for for specific pathology. We have to have skills around coaching. We have to have handling skills. Uh, you know, we have to be able to be adaptable in the way we train people mm. and skilled trainers mm. of movement and build. I mean, essentially, the, what we're doing is fundamentally, I think, de-threatening people, building self-efficacy, shifting people's understanding of their world, mm. and that's. That's hard for clinicians. It's mm. bloody hard for a patient with a lived experience. <laughs> so so yeah. there are two behavior change things that we think have to happen with a clinician. One is for us and the other is to we need to do it ourselves to take our patients on that journey. And that's what we're seeing at the moment through train, our training programs with, uh, with physios is like, they're telling us this is that they have that's an intervention in themselves. And some people find that easy. Some it's really tough and some won't ever go there. This is why I think physios... Like our patients. <laughs> like our patients. Yeah. And who'd blame them? So this is why I yeah. think, Peter, physios are the polymaths of healthcare. And I got a little into a little bit of trouble for saying that. But we have to be aware of everything, right? From the cell to so. society. Yeah, and, exactly. And I'm not trying to denounce any other profession. All healthcare professions should probably be like that. But, but we also have to appreciate how complex it can be as a job, right? Yeah, it is, yeah. what it is. So we have to support each other and new graduates especially. Totally. Right? So I, important. Yeah, I don't and like... And not undermine them. Yeah. Totally so agree. Do, do you feel like we're getting any better in terms of, on average, and this is your opinion, I'm not asking for evidence here, in terms mm. of, of appreciating the multidimensionality of pain and incorporating N equals one and all these sorts of things in, on average, in clinical practice, perhaps yeah. in Australia? I think we give it lip service, but I think fundamentally we're not skilled. Uh, I think we don't have a skilled workforce to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we skill our undergraduates. And look, I can't talk for, you know, I have to be careful here because, you know, I think, I, I, think, I think there is a shift in a lot of the teaching programs. I definitely think that. But um, the skill set required, that's pretty tough. And, you know, for, I've kind of... Uh, gone through my journey acquiring skills as I've got about it. I, I kind of wish that someone at the beginning of my journey had gone, look, mate, if you want to spend your time and energy, do it in this way would have saved me a lot of heartache. But that probably wouldn't, you know, then my, my journey would look different to that. Mm. And I'm not, I don't regret anything that I've done from that mm. angle. But, yeah, I think we need to really be, um, like I think dealing with, Particularly, like if you think of our health challenges at the moment, there's non-communicable communicable diseases. Pain is a massive issue. It's a huge source of disability. We're not managing it well in our communities. We're not funding it properly. We don't have, we're not putting the resources into it that need to be. That constrains bad practice as I see it. And we're not upskilling people to feel confident in dealing with it. And that's what we understand from the qualitative study. So, yeah, we have to, we have to really, um, I think, a multi-pronged approach of, like, one, develop evidence. So we just can't be doing shit that's got no evidence. Um, that's, that's part of what we're interested in. And look at it to say, you know, can we – we talk about self-management, right? Self-management doesn't happen. Self-management is coached. It's evolved. Mm. That's a really hard gig for someone who's locked into opioid dependency and out of work and whatever to shift them towards self-management. A massive goal. Yeah. We put it's in the guidelines, but how do you do it? There's yeah, what does no it mean? real. Yeah. There's no framework behind that, and it's like the, the reviews go. You know, um, address psychological and physical barriers to recovery. Well, what does that look like? How do you do that? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like we have this huge opportunity to upskill, um, which to me is kind of like that'll be the second part of my journey I, as I see it. 
um, that's kind of like my next chapter, I reckon. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, my last chapter, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. No, Peter. Not much. Many more chapters to go. Can it, so that that's that sort of gets us to just briefly yours and and Jeremy's paper, right? In terms of this, yeah. how we're trying to reframe how we yeah. care for people with persistent musculoskeletal yeah. pain, and it's a beautiful paper. It's just it's hard to see it and from my perspective and this is i'm not having a go at anyone or anything here it's just and this was what you were saying before we're just not set up clinic wise to be able to institute a lot of these things are we no, because there's pressures no. from bosses there's pressures from yeah. this and that massive and issue so massive issue so i look at it this way you don't go to a psychologist for 20 minutes do you yeah. <laughs> why not good point they don't work like that i don't work like that i can't work like that mm. Now, 20 minutes is okay to screen and sprain ankle for someone who's hardly coping, give them some advice. So, uh, you know, I, uh, my view on how we should be structuring practice is screen for complexity early yeah, and then, you know, drive people down two paths. So for those who have got simple problems, don't over-treat them because you'll over-medicalize them. They don't need it. Reassure them, set them up for success because that's all they need, reassuring, education, success. For those who are vulnerable, we need to capture them early because we know they emerge early. And you, most of these people present with a recurrence of an underlying problem mm. when shit happens in their life, mm. usually is what mm. happens. And we, our systems are not designed to deal with that. So Ivan Lin did this, um, led this study in um, ED, looking at people with non-traumatic pain, heaps of them coming into ED with back pain, neck pain, and they're scanned and given opioids and sent on their way. Like these people are crying for help, they're frightened. And what are we doing? We're frightening them more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that's nuts. So, uh, you know, in my mind, we need to be able to screen people. Everyone should be screening their patients. Identify those who have got, you know, who've got complex and then either not hold them, either refer them to people who are skilled to deal with that complexity mm. or upskill yourself to deal with it yourself. And, mm. you know, to my way of looking at it, you don't want to spend an hour with every sprained ankle because that's or a, you know, calf strain or whatever because that's just not fair on those people to pay for that. But that idea of um, actually structuring funding around complexity to me just makes a whole lot of sense. That would change our landscape if we could do that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you there. Well, so what are you? I'm conscious of your time here, Peter. What are you? What are you working on at the moment? Is there anything we need to <laughs> we need to keep it an ear out? Where do we go? Well, we've um, we've uh, run this big trial in Australia, which is we'll call the Restore trial. It's a two centre trial between Perth and, and Sydney, and ironically, it's the only CFT trial that's been conducted in Australia. Uh, and people go, well, "Why does that happen?" Well, you know, I. I there's a perception that if I treat my patients, as, or I don't treat any patients and collect their data, never, doesn't happen because mm. that's got huge inherent biases. Mm. Um, but this trial was released, it's a fully funded in, a, in HMRC trial um, where we trained a group of practitioners toward to competency. So it wasn't like you just go and do a program and go out. Like we, we trained to competency. So you couldn't be involved in the trial unless you were delivering what we perceived to be CFT. Um, so that's, that's, we've got a PhD student, um, Phoebe Simpson, who's, uh, working in that space, looking at the journey for the physios, which is a really cool space. And she'll be publishing that work next year. Um, and then we're looking at both economic and clinical outcome data for these people. And they're people who are really disabled. So we took in, you know, a lot of physio trials exclude people with sight comorbidities. I mean, that's, that's the other people we need to help. <laughs> so it's crazy. You know, they exclude people over 65. There's a whole group of people at a later age who are desperate for our help. So it was a very inclusive trial. Um, it was compared to usual care because we wanted to look at the economics, the outcome and the economics of that. Um, so that's a really important study for our group to go and we will learn a lot from it like all research you know it's and i think you know it's embedding something that's completely countercultural within the health system mm. like a lot of what we do is completely countercultural to people's understanding of pain and i don't know if you read the back facts um paper but that paper which was published in bjsn which also has like gone like wildfire 
collected the beliefs, like basically collected the beliefs of about 80 people, chronic low back pain, that were all these common misconceptions and then talked about the facts. That's a huge challenge for us. So, yeah. you know, that's an area that we're working on. We're also, um, JP's uh, involved in a- a- applying CFT to um, people with NEOA who've been told they need a knee replacement. Mm. Um, there are other implementation studies in the UK and Denmark uh, utilizing that model, uh, we're involved in a, um, a study, a, a co-care model. This is the other thing that was particularly interested in, that physio shouldn't be in silo, that we need to be working closely with other health care practitioners to deal with really tough patients. So Rob Schutzer, who's part of our groups, ClinSight, super guy, uh, and he's leading some work looking at how CFT dovetails with pain psychology um, to kind of uh, integrate care as a model of care. Uh, and then we're kind of looking at how that works in the GP space as well. So, we, yeah, there are heaps of projects. That's just touching a small fraction of it. Um, so kind of two streams of work, well, a number of streams of work, but, um, yeah, yeah peripheral, uh, like peripheral pain, uh, how this model works for that sits in that space as well as in the, in the pain, back pain space. Where I see this going, you know, depending, and look, this is updating all the time. You know, it's not, this, this is not a constrained intervention. I, I learn every day in practice. So, you know, that's the beautiful part about learning. Did, did your, just quickly, did your clinical experience of seeing patients contribute to your oh, massive evolution? Yep. So yeah, my was... complete abject failure yeah. as a clinician. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. my complete inability yeah. to affect yeah. any meaningful change whatsoever in my patients made me deeply unsettled and highly reflective <laughs> people who came back or were lucky to come back to go yeah really screwed me up you know what you did just blew me up it's like oh what the hell is going on here and that's where i think I, that's i i think i've been fortunate that the patients know, know I deeply care for them, that they've been good enough to come back and go, mate, you're fucked up. Like that has been so helpful in my clinical journey. That's a great report. And it, yeah. and it, and it is still helpful in my clinical journey. Mm. I don't get it right all the time at all. Mm. Like, you know, we've got a tough gig managing, helping people with pain. It's mm. a tough problem. Some of this stuff emerges from deep early life trauma that sets the trajectory, that's a highly vulnerable group of people. You know, simple therapeutic modalities are gonna do nothing to that. That's a much deeper issue that we have to support people with. Mm. I'm not promising fixes for those people because I don't, I don't have them. So I think that's the message, honestly, mm-hmm. from today, Peter. It's, it's mm-hmm. clinical practice is hard. People yeah. are complicated as they should be, right? But learn reflect grow evolve from these experiences keep yeah. reading be radically open-minded critically appraised yeah. do all these sorts of things and perhaps one day we'll be adequate right uh well i think and the other the other thing that goes with that is we have to be way kinder to each other yeah. and not bashing each other up we have to be supporting yeah. each other we have to be kind to each other mm. there's a lot of lack of kindness out there in the social world social media mm. world mm. it's just ego-driven it's not mm. nice i hate it. It, de- it that unsettles me as well and i yeah. feel like it's driving people away from important conversations i'm with you it's not right and wrong it's mm. it's about and i just go back to hang on let's go back to the patient it's their mm. agenda mm. and let's support i mean I, I i get saddened by hearing young physios going you know i don't see a future in this job yeah i, I that saddens me but i go well that's a product of partly training partly the way the system is operating, the constraints of current practice to survive, force you into these doing shit that you probably don't want to be doing, that you don't believe in. You know, that I've been fortunate that's not – I could have ended up there. I would have gone and done something else, and mm. I nearly did. I nearly mm. did. I nearly left at that's an early a- stage of my career. I nearly did, but I'm so grateful I didn't because I love my job. Yeah, good. I, I want to just finish with that. I yeah. got this card yesterday. This is the golden moments for me in my work. Dear Peter, there are no words for me to express the amount of thanks and gratitude for you. You have given me my life, me hope and happiness and zest of a life again. Uh, thank you for being a compass to help me get on my right track. Like that's the gold that makes me love my job. 
And that's a person who was out of work, who was on a shitload of opioids, who was disabled and distressed and now is back at work. She's off all the drugs. She's got a pathway for a future. She still has some pain, but it's not not dictating her life. Like Mm. that is just... The loveliest experience. As it's a, such a privilege to take a person on that journey. And look, not everyone gets to walk that path. But if if in my small time on this planet, I can help facilitate a shift in how we care for people, I'm happy with that. Beautiful. All right, Peter. I'm going to finish off with what book are you reading right now? These are weird questions. Uh, that was people, interesting. People yeah. Look, I um. <laughs> I just recently read John Suzuki's The Legacy. Oh, cool. It's a very cool book. It's yeah. very short, but it's yeah. kind of a, a reflection on uh, our responsibility to care for our planet. It's a very beautiful book, and it resonates deeply with me. I feel very unsettled with our, our political landscape at the moment and how we're operating. And to me, I don't see a lot of discussion around that. But, mm. you know, care for ourselves, care for each other, care for our planet as part of our ecosystem. Peter, that's a perfect that's a perfect end point. That's absolutely poetic. I thank you so much for your time, mate. Like I said, this is, this is really, you know, 10, 15 years of being a physio and you've been probably the biggest influence on my career. I know I can speak for a lot of my colleagues as well. I'm not trying to inflate your ego here, Peter, but I'm just trying to say thank you. So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, look, thank you. And I think one of the things that we don't we don't often know, we don't really know how our work sits on people. Mm. Um, so to hear that it has influenced you in a positive way is wonderful because that's we spend, we agonize and spend hours doing this stuff to try and how we message something and we don't always get it right. So if it this, if it falls well and sits well on people, that's great. So that's what it was, you know, then it's done what we hoped it would do. So and thank you. No, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Peter O'Sullivan. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.